Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. All righty. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. We are going to talk about a topic that I think pretty much everybody in crypto is talking about right now, Sheila. I mean, we thought FTX was going to be the biggest story around. <laughs> I, I think that the banking crisis and its intersection with crypto is it, because this is where the rubber yeah. meets the road. This is the story about why we're here. This is like it, it, the, the very fact that Bitcoin's price has risen in the midst of all of this sort of, you know, risk off anxiety is is fascinating because it's suddenly like everything. Bitcoin's gone from being a safe haven to not being one, to being a risk asset, to being a risk off asset. You can put whatever narrative you want on it, it seems. But either way, it feels as if that conversation that now people are actually kind of waking up. And as I wrote in my column last week, something akin to what the crypto crisis, sorry, rather the, the Cyprus crisis was back in 2013 when Bitcoin yeah. rallied, I think, to all of $200 back in those days. The narrative was rich around the possibility of being an alternative to this sort of confiscation and seizure of of yeah. bank money. Anyway, that's that's where my head's been going. Well, no, what I think is amazing exactly what you just said is like you can almost tell the story any way you want. I and mean, there's so much to mm. tease out here, right? You can say that this is a validation of everything crypto stands for, which I think is my view. You can also take the point that, oh, no, this is a detraction and this is kind of proof that crypto was a disaster and caused banks to fail. You know, people are spinning this in all kinds of different ways. And what's been interesting is watching as information kind of trickles out about what was going on. I'll tell you, I'm out here in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. I mean, you, you think this was a topic of discussion in other places out here. Everybody I know, half my neighborhood, you know, suddenly didn't have a bank account. And the concerns around, mm. can I make payroll, you know, come Tuesday were tremendous. Whether I was at, you know, like I was at my kid's friend's birthday party, all anybody was talking about. The taqueria on the corner, at the mm. playground. I mean, it was just a weekend uh, from, from hell <laughs> in, in many ways. <laughs> very, yeah. very stressful for folks. And so- the yes. Bank of Silicon Valley, you are Correct. at ground zero at this moment, right? Yeah. Correct. Well, a little known fact is that that bank didn't just bank tech companies right. or portcos, right? It, it banked nonprofits. It banked donor-advised funds. It banked, you know, uh, churches. It banked all kinds of different institutions that were regionally you know, connected in some way to the region, uh, which it was a much bigger problem. So. Right. That's something I think got lost in all of this was just the kind of impact it had on the community here and all the folks who were very worried about making payroll for their teams or getting paid and being able to make rent or whatever else it was. So like I say, yeah. this could be spun any number of different ways. And it certainly has been by folks who have a political point to make or perhaps have a, you know, a technical point even in some cases to make, but super eager to hear from our guests and yeah. chat today with them about all this. Yeah, I mean, just one last point before we bring him in. I'm so glad that you raised that little known fact for two reasons. One is the sheer politicization of, of SVB. The is it, you know, Peter Thiel's fault or, you know, Sachs's fault or these others who were cheering it on or arguing for bailouts? You know, this this whole, oh, the tech bros caused this thing is one narrative, which of course is completely exaggerated, but nonetheless has some element of truth to it. And then the other part that's interesting is like, well, this is ultimately why we have systemic risk. Systemic risk is phrased in different ways. One is the connectivity of all these big banks, these CIFIs, these systemically important financial institutions to each other. 
but it's also just the system, meaning the community, the people who rely on these institutions to make payments and everything else. And you've just described perfectly how vulnerable that is from a very, very human perspective. So on that note, why don't we bring in two guests who I think are just going to be really excellent for this conversation. We're really lucky to have Ram Alawalia, who is the CEO and co-founder of Lumita Wealth Management, uh, and Alex Thorne, head of research at Galaxy Digital. Guys, I, I don't know, you, you've maybe had a few other things to think about in the last couple of weeks, but I imagine this has been pretty much uh, dominating a lot of your brain spaces. It has been so many others in this community. Just quickly, just to get us started, like, both of you, give us just the biggest takeaway that you have from all of this, like just in a, a summary of some form. So Ram, let's start with that. What do, what do you, sure, what, what's your, sure. your big takeaway? Headline is trust still matters in a trustless world. And here we're talking about public confidence in the banking sector. Uh, if individuals and corporate treasurers don't have confidence in their banks, uh, then as you pointed out earlier, the fractional reserve banking system comes under stress. The the U.S. fractional reserve banking system requires two things, FDIC deposit insurance, and we know that deposit insurance levels are $125 billion, covering $17 trillion in deposits. Uh, and the second thing you need is a lender of last resort to create liquidity so that banks that are solvent can meet the demand requests of uh, depositors. So that's, that's my highest level take. I think the second take is this is not a 2008. This is an interest rate risk uh, issue, not a credit risk issue, which is what we saw in the last crisis. Banks can hold to maturity. So the policy imperatives for regulators are twofold. One is stop bank runs and do whatever you can to stop them. And then the second imperative is to uh, liquefy the bank balance sheets so they can meet withdrawal requests. If those two imperatives are accomplished, then banks hold to maturity, the bonds are money good, and then you kick the can down the road regarding moral hazard market discipline, and obviously you revisit and tighten regulation. Yeah, I want to dig into all of that. There's so many things to unpack. But first, just one point for listeners, uh, what Ram was referring to in terms of what we mentioned earlier was, in fact, a conversation we had off uh, camera before we went into this, but we're definitely going to get into that fractional reserve uh, question. Uh, Alex, how about you? What, you know, big takeaway here. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, from my seat, you know, we're very focused on the cryptocurrency industry in particular. But I will say, I mean, I agree with what Ram said about the the structural risks to the banking system obviously became very apparent, very different than 2008, right? The things being held on the balance sheet were not packaged, you know, junk like they were in 2008. Clearly a duration mismatch exacerbated by the Fed's, you know, unprecedented rate hiking cycle. Still also bank mismanagement, at, particularly at Silicon Valley Bank, it appears in terms of matching those uh, assets to liabilities. Something that, you know, like 2008, though, the credit agencies missed, apparently, even though there have been short sellers explaining this about SVB for months, actually. Regulators apparently not seeing it. I mean, they have real-time data in some cases. This is still a Fed member bank, right? Maybe not a, a SIFI, SVB wasn't at the, at the time, but so surprising. I would say one of the first takeaways, I think it, it really caught the market off guard, which is then looking back at it in hindsight, very surprising, knowing what we know about what has happened in the banking and, and rates space. For crypto, I mean, I think clearly the industry, the crypto industry in the United States relies on these on and off ramps, and particularly the Silvergate Exchange Network and, and Signet at Signature Bank. Now, Silvergate wound down. It didn't need a bailout. It didn't get taken over, right? I mean, to their credit, I don't think anybody lost funds there in the way they might have at SVB or at Signature. And as far as I know, Signet is actually still operating, which is very interesting. But 
one big takeaway, right? The vulnerability for the crypto industry on the banking side, and that's not just when the banks go away, but also the pressure that's being applied to the banking industry on crypto by regulators since the start of the year. And then I would say just the other big story that you know we've been shouting from the rooftops for about 12 days now is Bitcoin's unique sort of role here, given that it was its, itself founded and launched in, on January 3rd, 2009, sort of at the height of the last banking crisis, the last great financial crisis. And obviously, you've seen markets react to that. And you know how long that narrative plays out, there's a lot of other factors involved, but it's something we're watching closely. Yeah, like, I, okay, a couple of different ways to take both things that both of you said here. But one, I think maybe let's just start with the highest level stuff, the Fed itself. And this is one for, 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 for Ram, I think, for you, really. The fact that this really seems intrinsically connected to Fed policy, that you can't sort of separate the risk here from the question of whether or not the Fed was acting too aggressively, or maybe not, or maybe it had literally no option. And this is the way I tend to see it. There really was a truly a non-transitory inflationary risk that they had to attack and they had to attack aggressively, uh, which is a product of all of its, in many respects, prior policies, QE, quantitative easing that went in from 2009 right through to now, more or less unstopped. And now they're having to unwind that. That seems like all things being equal, the appropriate thing to have done. But there's something about this moment in terms of how banks and risk associated with liability mismatches seem to be also to Sheila's point about the community impact of when that goes under. There's something about this dangerous side effect, this sort of collateral damage component to that, that is is not just putting the Fed in a bind. And we're going to have to find out, by the way, with this, this podcast is going to be out on Friday and the Fed will have had its very important meeting tomorrow. So I'm not sure how we're going to, we can't front run that conversation, unfortunately. You know, it's not only just putting the Fed in a bind when it comes to that. To me, it underscores the core problem of central banking itself, right? That, that payments, our payment system is intrinsically connected to this vulnerable mismatch liability system that requires confidence and trust and everything else. Where does this all go? Like, to, to sort of, again, take this very high-level picture, is there a world in which this problem leads us to that biggest of all questions that we that we really have to start thinking about the structure of how monetary policy itself is managed here? It's, it's a phenomenal, incredibly thoughtful question. So first off, I agree, we're paying dues on 14 years of ultra-low interest rates, quantitative easing. And we've also seen the generals fighting the last war. With Dodd-Frank and the new bank supervision regime, there were significant penalties for taking credit risk. There was a, a drive towards what are called high-quality liquid assets. Those are mortgage-backed investment-grade securities and treasuries. Banks loaded up on them in a low-rate environment. And now, as you pointed out, rates have gone up at the fastest rate since 1981, when Paul Volcker was in charge and we all said uh, inflation issues. So that's one. Unintended consequences would be the kind of the summary statement around that. Mm -hmm. Two is the Federal Reserve is experiencing the very same pain that's being felt by these regional banks. The Federal Reserve has a $1.5 trillion mark-to-market loss if you uh, realize losses on its whole-to-maturity portfolio. By the way, that number is multiples of the, call it $500, $600 billion in unrealized whole-to-maturity losses felt by the banking system, by the regional banks. The difference, of course, is that you can't get a run of the bank and the Fed. You can exit fiat. That's what you can do. You can't bank run the Fed. The Fed can hold to maturity, so there'll be money good on it. Although there are questions around the effectiveness of monetary policy and the long-term inflation rates, as you pointed out earlier as well, and CoinDesk reported today, 
the Fed is uh, introducing additional liquidity. Uh, and, you know, well, what happens? You know, Larry Summers said it well Friday night in his Wall Street Week uh, interview. He said the way you address a excessive lending in a financial crisis is you do more lending. And that's what you're seeing here with credit facilities, BTFR, hmm. US dollar swap lines. Now, your forward-looking question is a very interesting one. And the reality is today, people are putting out fires. They're doing systemic risk emergency exceptions. The regulatory response and how we think about improving system will happen longer term. I have initial thoughts on that. For example, banks should be obligated to have private insurance above the 250K cap. Reinsurance companies like Berkshire Hathaway, Swiss Re, and others can play that role. And that also introduces market discipline. Uh, but I don't think fiat or the fractional reserve banking goes away. Hmm. I think you're going to see even greater supervision, more regulation. Uh, I think you're going to have some form of making explicit the currently implicit protection that the FDIC has around depositors. Today, just a few hours ago, Secretary Yellen uh, indicated that even community banks, which are not systematic, we'd be protected from bank runs. So that's a quick flyover on a rich set of topics. Yeah, well, there's one, there's one good reason for why that might be necessary, right? In in that, like, we need diversity in our banking system. I mean, that's one of the things that I find so alarming is like, okay, where are we going to put our funds? Where are we going to feel safe? We're going to feel safe in a SIFI, in a systemically important financial institution, of which there are, I think officially 25 in the world or something, and what, six or seven in the United States. So the thing that really gets me, and this is where I want to bring Alex in, because I think it goes to the heart, not just of like a technical response from crypto, but almost an ethical one. We're talking about monopoly power here. And if the system is geared, and I think, you know, your idea, Ram, about, you know, private insurance, well, that's just really useful. But in some respects, the argument is like, okay, who can afford to build that level of, of insurance? Maybe just the big banks. So we end up with this really concentrated banking system with these all-powerful bankers who we know from the last crisis are capable of holding our political system hostage. But now they don't really have the hostage control, but if they're going to control the majority of our payments, they have censorship control. And this is where crypto gets really interesting. So, so Ram, how does that work? It's not just Bitcoin as an alternative to the fiat money run riot, you know, you know, uh, monetary de debasement. It's literally like, I don't want to have the system so concentrated here. And Bitcoin is kind of like an escape policy from all of that. And it's, it's kind of a human right issue. You, well, you nailed it. I mean, crypto is a noble purpose. Censorship resistance uh, enables trustless intermediation uh, without oversight or the requirement of a trusted party. And that's a noble value, right? If you're in uh, Iran or Venezuela or Cuba, you do not have those freedoms. And the ability to transact is a form of expression, a form of controlling your property rights. That's one. Second, your points on the payment system is well taken as well. The average merchant, think about like that uh, corner bodega, uh, retailer has a net profit margin of 1%, a net profit margin of 1%. And the average interchange rate paid out to Am Amex or a card issued by Visa MasterCard is between 2 to 3%. And we are moving to a cashless world. In India, a rickshaw driver settles digitally. They're not using cash anymore. China was there five years ago with WeChat. And I'm all for competition, but you don't have competition to these legacy networks and crypto presents a viable pathway for creating competition for payments networks. And you're also correct. The, the big banks are influential in, in shaping policy and we need competition. You know, today the policy because of Bank Holding Company Act prevents uh, big tech entrepreneurs, VCs 
or even private equity companies having a controlling interest in a bank. So when SVB is on the rope, they cannot pass the hat to the other VCs to recapitalize it or invest in modern technology mm. or provide capital. Berkshire Hathaway has $140 billion in cash. Look, I, I believe there are concentrations that are legitimate concerns mm. around tech, but I, I would kind of like to see Bezos Bank compete against Diamond mm. Bank as well. So <laughs> and, and yeah. crypto has an important role to enable competition here. That's a really good point about maybe the regulatory structure is itself one that sort of leads to this concentration. And But I think Ram just left with an interesting aside at the end there. I'd like you to pick up on Alex, like crypto playing a role, right? Like yeah. almost it, it, whether or not we're going to get hyper Bitcoinization or Balaji's prediction of a million dollar Bitcoin in 90 days. It seems to me that um, just simply the idea that it exists as an alternative becomes this really interesting competitive force. Yeah. How yeah, do you, absolutely. How do you fit crypto into this kind of censorship challenge, this concentration, this monopoly power problem? It is concentrating. I, I think in the year 2000, there were something like 10,000 banks in the US, and now we're down in like the 4,000 range. And you know it will go smaller as all of these, first of all, deposits fleeing to larger banks. I mean, everyone was basically moving their money from whatever to the biggest bank that they have an account at, right? Like that's, it feels like that's what most businesses were doing over the last two weeks. So that concentration will increase. And then if you overlay something like, you know, Fed now is going to come out apparently in the summer, which is the Federal Reserve's own real-time payment system, which by the way, not suggesting anything untoward here, but both Sen and Signet are similar, right? And now mm. probably dead or under government control. And then let alone the CBDC question, right? Like you, you can see sort of the, the centralization noose tightening. And even if that's, you know, not nefarious, it may just be the natural outcome of these successive banking failures over decades and you know problems in the banking system that require this significant intervention. And the intervention is almost always in the form of further centralization. So it's never been sort of more apropos, I think, that you have a possible alternative to that. And you know, to me, it's very hard for me to think of you know, humanity 50, 100, 200 years in the future being extremely successful and not having the ability for me to transact directly with Michael, Sheila, Ram directly, right? Without any, any intermediary. It seems like that's a natural step in human evolution, but that the machinations of the banking system and frankly, the global state is working against. If crypto wasn't here, if Bitcoin wasn't here, you'd really have no means of alternative at all. And so I, you know, is it a coincidence? Is it sort of fate that humans sort of, as this started happening, came up with this innovation? I really don't know. But I know that it's powerful. And I think particularly not just on payments, although, of course, that's a clear way that we can transact that sort of contradicts this, but also on this transparency, safety, predictability question. I mean, you know, as they say, one Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin. It's, it's going well backed by energy. It's backed by nothing. There is no collateral in a bank account. There is no assets on a balance sheet backing Bitcoin. But in, in essence, it's fully reserved. You can see where they all are at all times very, very different concept of money than how fiat currencies work worldwide. I think merely having that alternative is, is extremely powerful. It doesn't need, Bitcoin doesn't need to overthrow fiat currencies, I think, to be successful. It already has been very successful, as Ron pointed out as well. It is very useful for many people around the world on a regular basis. We hear stories and read about people in the Ukraine and in Lebanon and Argentina, places with hyperinflation or chaos, right? People fleeing Syria using Bitcoin and crypto assets to protect their wealth, not just spend it. So we know these stories are real and that they are having an impact today. Um, we also know the market values it a lot already. And, and I think it's very obvious that there's a powerful alternative. I think, like I said before, I think humanity deserves that alternative. So that's, you know, I think one of the things driving 
a lot of people, as you know, who are extremely dedicated to this entire movement. I think this is such an interesting point, Alex, because when we think about the shrinking in bank availability, that is disproportionate, right? It's disproportionately affecting certain populations. And we saw this over the pandemic when you had first the closure of bank branches, but then banks that were consolidating again, the banks that were merging or, or, or doing these kinds of activities. And then when we look globally, we talked on this show before just about how de-risking has affected at the country level, the ability to move money into certain places is now ridiculously expensive. And the main reason for that is that you have to do so many hops through various banks in order to get money into certain places. So we have a country level impact, a community level impact. Uh, and interestingly enough, of course, in this country, a history of you know redlining other practices that create tremendous bias in these systems. And so when you think about the the moves or the inroads that were made, you know, earlier in the well, last century, I guess, <laughs> I always forget, but last century, trying to address some of these problems, right? Some of the the bias that had been put into the systems. And then all a lot of that got unwound over the course of the past 10 years, but certainly over the pandemic. And so I'm curious, you know, because we have determined that there are some banks that are just too important and too big and, you know, similarly, so they're GSIBs or SIFIs, as we've talked about. You know, how how does one get that designation? Like, who decides that a bank qualifies as a SIFI? Maybe that's a question, Rom, well, for you. Yeah, there is one. I want Rom probably well, yeah. has the actual answer, but <laughs> real quick, I mean, it's it, it, I think at the t- at the highest level, in particular, with the biggest banks, like they're, they're these are not really in the traditional sense private enterprises, right? They are they work yeah. with specific government charter with specific government obligations and protections, right? And I think now the demand from the regional banks is that they also receive some of those same, right? It's it's a true chartering and, and you see it more with the bank regulations, which are prudential regulations, not simply oversight regulations. They can tell the banks what they can and can't hold and what they can and can't do, right? So I, I think there, that centralization is really acute at that big level. And, and the solutions put forth to the the lack of access to banks and these types of crises really just push it further in that direction. But I, I know Ram has the actual SIFI answer on this. I, 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 just, I love the actual versus the, so it's almost like one of those like wrong answers only, but that was not a wrong answer. That was actually a, a yeah, really interesting, answer. interesting, valuable take on it. Ram, but what, are, yeah, maybe uh, Tashila's going yeah, to no, talk I'll, us through the process. I believe it's probably financial stability oversight a group FSOC, which is under US Treasury Department that established that designation. But I think you're, you're touching on there are a number of these imbalances in the system. So one imbalance was between the large GSIB banks and the small banks. And now we're seeing deposit flow from small to big. And the regulators don't want that concentration either, by the way. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason why the FDIC rejected bids to acquire SVB uh, at, at low ball prices. That's one imbalance. The other imbalance is between the deposit market and the securities market, right? So now Vanguard money market funds offer 4.6% yield, which is higher than any bank can offer because any bank that came even close to that would have a negative interest margin. That's a second imbalance. We could go on, but I think those are the two things to to consider and focus on. I just worry that we know they don't want centralization. I think if you saw the questioning of Secretary Yellen in Congress, that was very clear from her statements. They don't want it, but it, it seems inevitable and that they don't really have a solution that doesn't result in it. Yeah, no, it's it's extraordinary what's happening over the last two weeks. This idea that $30 billion of deposits from the major banks are now customers of First Republic. <laughs> I haven't seen that before. So just to put this in perspective, so First Republic 
experience tens of billions of dollars in deposit outflows. So how do you stop those outflows? We have inflows and those inflows came from other banks who have excess liquidity because the top five banks in the United States have over 50% of the deposits. Now, JP Morgan is paying 0% of their deposits even today. They turn around, they make a deposit First Republic, and they're earning spread on that. <laughs> they're making money on that. It's wild. So yeah. it is, it's really wild. It's like this circular flow of deposits from small to big and then big back to the small bank. And you just have to wonder, this is a response to some extent to 2008, right? And and, and how is this the answer? <laughs> you know, like, it's It's wild because it's, what it's created instead, to the points that you're both are raising, is is this a new concentration that is super challenging, and and really the incentives are, you know, to de-risk in various ways, unless you're kind of forced not to do that by the federal government, right, or by some other authority, basically, yeah. whether it's from pressure from your investors or whoever it is, to kind of re-diversify in a way. It's it's it's. I agree. I think here's another wow. way to look at the tension briefly is like, look, banks are in the risk-taking business. They take credit risk and they take interest rate risk. All banks are doing a carry trade where they borrow short and they lend long. And post-2008, the regulator says, hey, we don't want you to take credit risk. So that that earnings has to move to interest rate risk. And in that period of ultra-low QE, you know what happened there. The other two ways banks make money though is payments and crypto presents an alternative to that and also custody. Uh, but custody, it's, it's hard to make much money on. And, you know, of course, you saw what happened with Custodia Bank. You know, they're not permitted to access Fed payments uh, rails, uh, nor, you know, get into the custody business. Yeah. Look, so, so just on this, so I think this to me, and I might be wrong, I don't have nearly the breadth of knowledge I think you have in this area, Ram or you, Alex, but like, it feels to me like this is the payments moment in the sense that like 2008 was about systemic risk for this broad structure of banking. And there was a moment in which the reserve fund broke the buck when people started saying, oh no, we need to fix this because commercial paper might go under, which is the treasury management of all these companies, therefore they can meet payroll. But this feels even more direct. Like This literally was all these institutions, and as Sheila said, not just tech firms, but just mom and pop shops, all sorts of things could not make payment. So to me, it just brings home this idea that that I, what you just outlined around, that banks are in the business of taking risks, has a very unhealthy, very long history, but a very unhealthy long history of also being associated with this fundamental infrastructural role of, of running our payments. So this is why stablecoins exist. This is why Bitcoin exists in a different sense. But really, if you think about fiat, it's why stablecoins exist. It's why the idea of narrow banking and what Custodia Bank is talking about, but also what stablecoins like USDC and others are trying to achieve are doing. We fully reserve what we do. We're not about fractional reserve. We're about this. There's a whole lot of questions that come out of that as if you get to build a banking system on pure that, because where the hell do you get leverage and lending from? However, I suppose my question is, does any of this impact the where the, the government itself is going to think about policy with regards to things like stablecoins, CBDCs? Is there an opportunity? Is there a risk? Whatever way we want to put it, that the government will look at payments and say, you know what, one way or another, we need to get this out of that and, and start supporting these new models. Um, be it a CBC, be it a stablecoin, because those choices are really obviously have huge implications. Yeah. Where does it go from a policy perspective? I think it's an incredible opportunity right now to advance a positive vision for crypto and stablecoins. Uh, unfortunately, regulators today put stablecoins in the 
risk bucket, FSOC is looking at stablecoins from that perspective, as opposed to looking at it from the point of view of a solution bucket. And Sheila and her group are are advancing the correct message around crypto. We need, we need to keep doing that. Uh, I, I do expect, and Sheila would know better than I do, but I, I do expect that you'll see if there's regulation or legislation, it'll be focused on stable coins. There are known issues around uh, the lack of clarity around that. And uh, that's an opportunity to, to, to advance the ball. But we have to lead with a positive vision for crypto as opposed to playing defense and playing whack-a-mole with the various institutions blowing up in the background. I would love to see that. You have you know, progressive frameworks emerging in the UK, in Europe, in the Middle East, in South, the South Pacific, really, truly groundbreaking ones. Some of them new comprehensive bespoke regimes like in Europe, others, you know, sort of describing how cryptocurrencies, including stable coins, can be fit into the existing laws like in the UK, um, which is what, you know, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler says that he wants, right, which is fit crypto into our existing frameworks. But unfortunately, the SEC hasn't done the groundwork that her, uh, His Majesty's Treasury just did on a range of issues to make that possible. It seems like we're really sort of taking an opposite tact towards most of the rest of the world right now, which is unfortunate. Of course, I think we all believe that public blockchains, whether for stable coins or public, you know, public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, can be transformative not only for individuals but also for our economy. And we just don't seem to be doing the right stuff here in the United States to encourage that and to protect consumers while we do. I'm not very optimistic that it's going to come in the U.S. anytime soon, just given the tenor of the reactions to cryptocurrencies that we've seen. Obviously, the crypto industry is a lot to blame for that, for, for you know all the stuff we saw in 2022. But I do think that this raises a big question, in particular, stablecoins versus CBDCs, which you referenced, Michael. You know, you had the presidential working group in 2021 basically say banks should be the ones who issue stablecoins or stablecoin issuers should become banks. But then you had January 3rd, 2023, the joint statement from the Fed, FDIC, and OCC. Essentially, I, I believe the language was essentially prohibiting banks from either principally issuing or holding crypto assets. So now they can't do them. And and you've got, so they're sort of all over the map on this. And, and you mentioned the narrow bank, Michael, which I think is a good point because, you know, a stable coin issuer, assuming they have, you know, above board reserves, reserve composition and transparency and no duration risk there, and they're not lending, right? Take Circle as an example. Like they do look like a non-lending, uh, fully reserved depository. That I, I wonder why that is risky. It, 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 well, one of the reasons was exposed to us for a couple of days at least when the brack was broken and it fell beneath, you know, down to what it was eighty-five cents because of the fact that some of its cash was held at SVB. But if now, they had been allowed to hold that cash like Caitlin Long wanted to in a Fed Master it, yes. account, right? That's the key. To point. me, what I, yeah, yeah, what I wonder about is, is this a risk? Is a circle, is this exact composition of a stable coin as we know it at circle, similar to the risk that, that perhaps Custodia poses, which is a giant sink for deposits in a time of crisis, right? That instead of just fleeing to, from the small banks into the SIFIs, you might flee into something like that. And, and that actually could given the fact that the rest of the fractional reserve banking system isn't that, is that part of the fear here uh, about encouraging something like that to exist? Obviously, as Ramos pointed out too, there are already other alternatives to bank deposits, money market funds, you know, T-bills that, that already sink cash out of the regional. And that's already been part of the problem for the regional banks, right? Not being able to offer those interests. But I, I think there's obviously very powerful payments piece here. And, it, and I, your, your question is, is right on point, Michael. I mean, it's not exactly clear to me why the payments use case has to be directly coupled to the fractional reserve banking. 
You can de-link payments and and lending and custody, and you, you just cited a few examples of how you do that. It's hard to be proactive and thoughtful about policy just given the state of play today. We brought up SVB earlier. SVB had a 50% decline in the demand deposits in the nine months ending September 30th last year. Signature Bank had a 20% decline in their deposits. Charles Schwab, this is before the crisis last year. And you know Charles Schwab also had a 20% year-over-year decline in deposits. And meanwhile, the money market fund shot up 70, 80%. So it's, you know, we are in triage mode. We are in put the fires out mode. Uh, the priority for the regulators is uh, safeguard the public's perception in the safety and soundness of the banking system. Uh, but while the regulators putting those fires out, now is the time to lay out a a policy and a positive vision for crypto. We can go on offense while the regulators are focused on putting these fires out. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. You know, I think it's interesting because I, I often thought, okay, the, the sort of repudiation or disavowal, you know, from some sectors in the United States of crypto was kind of a failure of imagination. And so I looked abroad, you know, you mentioned Alex HMT, and we've got CCI has a team there right now in London and Brussels, just meeting with, you know, I, I would say very bluntly, much more forward thinking leadership on these topics all the way, you know, in, in the UK, all the way up to the PM, Richie Sunak, you've got like support around this and saying, we want to diversify. And we think that digital assets are a way of actually encouraging diversification, right? So it's a very, very different frame on things. Uh, but now I actually think it's less a failure of imagination and we're just kind of a mischaracterization of, of the risk, kind of where risk sits in the system. And I think the point about Circle is such a good one because USDC DPEG because of a traditional bank, like that is the reason, that is the problem. And so it's just this fundamental misunderstanding or default into you know what we've always had, which could, I suppose, be a failure of imagination. But you know, it's a really challenging question how you actually bring into the conversation in you know in a in a productive way this idea that all along you know we looked at 2008 we had a reaction we did a thing that thing clearly hasn't solved a lot of the problems it's created other problems and you know it solved some part of the problem but it's created a lot of other problems and those problems again to my earlier point do fall disproportionately on certain parts of the population which we just have to acknowledge it's a really important thing I'm not going to put in inequality in our financial system directly down to that, but it's certainly a big factor. How do we assess all of that? And a lot of this, you know, the, the good and I suppose bad news is, well, the bad news primarily, I would say, is that it really comes down to politics. And it comes down to who you see as your primary constituents. And it comes down to how invested you are. And I don't mean that literally, I mean like more politically, right, or optically in the current system functioning as it's always functioned. And what we've seen is that here in the United States, we are pretty in bed with that system. And we feel pretty worried about anything that provides kind of alternate routes or even allows us to have a conversation at the highest levels about what is risk? What is actually risky in the system? And who is that risk falling upon? So I'm just curious to get you know your thoughts on that. And, 
And it's such a different conversation almost everywhere else in the world. I just I, find it fascinating. I'll chime in there too. No, no, I agree. This is one of the few times the U.S. is falling behind in terms of leading global policy. But I think the key term I'll, I'll dial in that you mentioned is constituency. And I think crypto needs to broaden the set of constituents by appealing to other groups. What does that mean? One is like innovation, lead with innovation. Amazon has an NFT project. Nike acquired Artifact. These are brands. These are global brands. Uh, they're ambassadors of US values internationally. They employ tons of people. So that's a constituency. I think the other is appealing to uh, US interests in advancing the US dollar. Uh, right now, China is starting to relax restrictions on the Hong Kong special economic zone around crypto. Do, do you want to enable avoidance of OFAC sanctions by having China, Russia, and India trade on a blockchain that doesn't settle in a US dollar-backed stablecoin. So I think appealing to that starts to flip the national security argument kind of on its head, appealing to broader brands, job creation, and, and innovation. I think the other thing that we can advance is this opportunity to revitalize the U.S. banking system. It needs fresh capital. It needs a digital backbone. It needs 24-7 settlement. And it needs private capital and entrepreneurial support to do that. So that, you know, in a way, crypto is like too smart for its own good. We're very technical and precise in the argumentation, as opposed to saying, look, let's broaden the appeal and look at what are these shared national values that we have. Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah, some of some of this, we've also <laughs> tied this a lot. And I think just to go a little deeper on one of your points to national security. Um, so I did this this thread that went viral a couple of weeks ago on semiconductors and just saying, like, I found it absolutely wild that at the same time as we're kind of de facto or deliberately, you know, whether inadvertently or deliberately offshoring crypto and this innovation, we're like desperately trying to get semiconductor manufacturing back on shore. And even to the point that we have a like congressional action around that and, you know, Biden, all these different kinds of incentives to do that. Uh, and that's largely because it's a national security issue. And so if we're allowing some element of our financial rails to be offshore, that does not seem like a great NATSEC approach, you know, to, a, to the situation. <laughs> we just put it out there. And, and we've actually found that that is um, the most productive conversation that we could have. And then tying it to just kind of looking at history and all the times that we have allowed, we have no idea how fundamental this innovation is going to wind up being to our financial system. We just don't know. All of us have our ideas about what that should look like, but we just don't know. The same way that no one really predicted the semiconductor chips would wind up being so seminal to like 90% of what we do on a daily basis, right? Uh, and the pandemic illuminated that with all the supply chain crises. Obviously, different things in terms of the ability and inability to do things, but the reality is that crypto is going to be built within a regulatory regime. And if that's not the US's regulatory regime, it's somebody else's. And if we then come out with something different, it's not that easy to just suddenly port things over into a different country. As we all know, it's very challenging. So I share, you know, a lot of these frustrations and concerns. And, and I can say that, you know, I, I think there's growing awareness within the intelligence community, within the IC, that this is a, a growing issue and that we need to be paying a lot more attention to it. I think at least a hedge, right? Even if like you think it could be big. Pascal's wager, right? right Pascal's exactly. wager approach. And, yeah, and, and totally. there's, there's easy things, right? Like the stable coin's a great example. Like that, that should dramatically extend the reach of the US dollar. We already see it in crypto markets, right? I mean, almost all of the markets are dollar denominated, right? I mean, you have a euro stable coin, it's like, you know, point two percent of all stablecoin volume, right? In the entire world. That's right. Let alone, you know, the amount of money backing it, collateral backing it. 
Um, and it's also, you know, it's going to be built within a regulatory regime somewhere. But I, the other thing I stress a lot when I talk with policymakers in the United States is that it's going to be built. It is being built. You're not going to stop this from happening, right? It's especially, you know, the fully decentralized uh, cryptocurrency networks, public blockchains, not just the networks, but the ones that are developed fully in a open decentralized way. Not necessarily the ones that are developed in, in private and then their code is open source, but the ones where it's literally built in the open, you're not going to stop that. You can push it away. You can push it around. At some point, you've got to grapple with the inevitability of this thing. That cat is not going back in the bag. So we're going to have to wrap in a moment. I want to pick up on two things. One that Sheila said a while ago and something that you said, Ram, and then just put to you guys maybe just sort of a summation of where we think this community right now with this opportunity that we see, but also risk, uh, can can best, you know, focus its energies. Because, you know, Sheila talked about risk. When I hear that, that description, it reminds me that we just, as a society, we have a really difficult time defining risks outside of this sort of entrenched paradigms. So, when the debate was always out there about whether or not there were stable coins or CBDCs or anything, result in what you were talking about, Alex, a while back of, oh, all of the funds flee um, the banking system into this stable coin. There's this presumption that that's going to be a bad thing. Now, I'm not suggesting it isn't, but like, hey, if the whole point about building a, a reserved stablecoin system is to actually get us off the drug of bailouts for these horribly overly controlled banks, then you know what? Undermining the banking system may be the actual point. How do we even do that? How would we create a system that, in fact, meant that the other functions of the banking service that we rely on right now, literally lending and capital formation, et cetera, et cetera, lands in a different environment, a much more risk-focused place? But we can't seem to have that conversation because we're all we're defining risk by these pre-existing parameters. We must protect the banking system is the is the mantra, right? What if it was a different system? I suppose that's one one way to, to sort of focus on things and where I want this question to go. And, and Ram, you just talked about how the crypto community uh, doesn't do a very gets very good and technical, but doesn't step back and see this bigger picture stuff. So with those two maybe disjointed but connectable points, I'd like both of you to come back and say, okay, given that this is this moment to talk about this high level stuff, uh, what could the crypto community do to help the entire world? start to imagine risk and these other challenges differently. Ram, can you just sure. start us off? Look, I agree we have a special moment in, in time to do this because skepticism of, of banks is is going up again, right? The Genesis block talks about Chancellor on the, on the brink of bailouts. So here's an opportunity to lead with a narrative, lead with policy. Uh, I think there's a lot of tactics around this. For example, why don't we write the SEC interpretive guidance that we want to see? Put that and offer it to the market. And then you start leading the conversation as opposed to kind of reacting, right? I think I think policy is critical to this conversation uh, and advancing the base of participants that are recognized by Congress that they care about. You know, the risk we we have here is that this is deemed a partisan policy. That's a high-risk scenario now. And, you know, the the, the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, Sherrod Brown's a, a Democrat. Uh, it doesn't need to be partisan, right? Larry Summers was on the board of DCG. He's a Democrat, former Treasury Secretary. So I, I think there's a special moment in history here. We've got to broaden the, the base and focus on leading with, with the policy in a way that people can relate to 
man on the street, the corner bodega, the human narratives. Why is Western Amen, New brother. the percent? <laughs> yeah, totally true. Totally true. I think we we do have to start demonstrating in a more concrete and, and evidence-based way that this is not just about funny money. You know, it's not just rich, white, Silicon Valley bros. You know, it's actually everyday people. Uh, and we have, you know, we have all the data to show that people are turning to crypto as an alternative because of failures in the banking system or because whether those are historical or whether those are contemporaneous, regardless there are systemic issues that have persisted even through attempts. I mean, I think very legitimate attempts made by you know people far far more knowledgeable than I to kind of redress some of those those circumstances and some of that bias and, and inequity, but it hasn't happened. Uh, and so we have to just until we acknowledge that fundamental truth, I think you know we're we're just we're having the wrong conversation is is what I think you know we're I, kind of arguing. Our, our highest level frame on this discussion, I think we're having is that we're just kind of having the wrong conversation. At the yeah. policy level. I mean, you, you have to understand, too, and, and I know we all do, but the, the idea of trust in banks and mistrust of banks have been going hand in hand for all of time. Right. I mean, That's right. it's a culturally well known. Look at the Bailey Savings Loan being attacked by, you know, Potter. Right. And, you know, the money's yes. not there. Right. It's it's in Joe's car. It's in it's in your driveway. It's in his house. Right. It's not there. Um, look at the scene in Mary Poppins when they go to the bank. It's terrifying. The bank is portrayed yes. as scary and a juggernaut. Right. Look back at the founding fathers of the United States, myriad quotes against banking from all of those guys. <laughs> I'm going to give a shout out here to you guys. What we're really talking about is I don't think it has to undermine or even overthrow the banking system, what crypto can do, but it can help evolve it. Right. Maybe yes. maybe it is money reimagined. I think that's a real. <laughs> A realistic way of thinking about hey, it. Hey, that's a that's yeah. a great phrase. Where'd you pull I that mean, one? I, yeah. I mean, I just we can just end right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, the reality is like we can also build this and integrate this, or we can sort of let it go and either have others build it, or the world will will turn to something like Bitcoin, right? A truly decentralized one, which I think could be good. But on the other hand, it, I think you know the American policy apparatus. There's a lot of value in maintaining the power and primacy of American capital markets and the banking system. And, and it's going to go one, one of those ways. It's, they can't just turn around and ignore it. They're going to have to learn to evolve and adapt. Let me add, a, I know you're going to wrap up soon, but two thoughts. I, I agree. Your, your point around advancing capital markets, and that is, I mean, that's very near and dear to my heart. Like, these crises wouldn't have happened in 08 if securities were settled on chain. The other opportunity is align with other groups that have similar interests, like the fintech group, for example, American Fintech Council. They're trying to compete with the banks. And they have a similar program in place to enable payments and enable non-bank lending. Walmart tried to buy a bank in the 2000s and the incumbents pushed back. So not just broaden the constituency, but broaden the base of folks that are in DC now trying to advance policy. Let's align with them to, to move this forward. All right, let's, let's, let's wrap there because I think it's a very interesting call to action right there because I think that one thing that is... Uh, crypto's, I suppose, Achilles heel is that it positions itself as the rebel outsider. And, and that's that's okay. That's part of where disruption and innovation comes from. But, you know, there's so much at stake. And, you know, to Alex's point about like, it's one way or another, the world's going to change. Is it going to change through this kind of like process of, of accommodation and, and development? Or is it going to be a, a really violent clash? Sometimes violent clashes are the best way to make change. Quite often, they're not because they're literally violent clashes. And the idea that you might actually expand the tent, to your point, Ram, and bring in other forces, I was always struck by how different, for example, Money 2020, which is a fintech conference, is or was to 
the greatest conference in the world, uh, Consensus 2023, shameless plug for you who have not bought your tickets. Please make sure you do so April 26th and 28th in Austin. Be there or be square. The, the difference between those two is stark. And in many respects, because we are talking about reimagining money, there really actually does need to be an alliance. I think we've tended to think of fintech as being, oh, those are just bankers by a different name. They're building the Venmos and the various other digital rails on top of banking, but they're sort of kind of endorsing it and justifying it. But in fact, if we look at this mess that we're all been talking about over this whole uh, episode, it's also intertwined. That I think you make a really good point, Ram, that there really literally needs to be some form of collective interest which brings us back to Sheila's point. It's like, it's the common humanity in all this. It's like all of us need to be part of this conversation, which some of us have been screaming about for some time. So thank you to you both for helping us uh, carry out that mission more. I, as you can probably tell, I'm rather animated about this conversation. This has been something I've been thinking and writing about for a very long time. I don't want to show my age, but banking crises have been an integral part of everything I've written about from my time in Argentina to Indonesia to everywhere. So bring it close to home to this topic that I do in love is, is something that's painful, but extremely interesting at the same time. And you guys have done a tremendous job of making it more so. So Alex Thorne, Ram Alawalia, my dear colleague and co-host Sheila Warren, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. And to all of you for listening, thanks for hanging in there. Let us know what the Fed decided to do tomorrow. I mean, two days ago, the complications of a delayed uh, <laughs> uh, production schedule. All right, that's all. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. With announcements by Adabi Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.